Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. And boy, have we got a jam-packed show for you today. Later on, we're going to talk to Robert Murphy from the Mises Institute, where we're going to play a little game. We're going to have some fun. We're going to do what the left always does, where Last week, Camilla Harris reimagined the American economy post-COVID. And as you can imagine, there was loads of small government, loads of constitutional government in there. I joke. There was a, let the, let the spend in, huh? Lots of uh, child care, lots of, what you call it over in America, you people, uh, infrastructure, huh? So we, I thought, you know what? It's time that we did the same thing. We need to start proposing solutions. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the American economy, but we're going to reimagine it true conservative eyes, true libertarian eyes, true constitutional eyes. So don't miss this. It's gonna, I think you're going to really enjoy it. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about something else, something that I think is equally as critical because I'm getting a few messages from you guys. But before we get to that, I want to ask you to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to imagine a scenario. And it's a scenario that sadly a lot of people and a lot of you listening right now may know personally or have had experience with this, or you know someone very close to you who has, because it's a very common theme. So I want you to visualize this person, man or woman, make it ever who you want it to do. They could be any race or any gender or any sexuality or any letter of the alphabet they want to be. And it's February 2020. And for this person, life is pretty okay. They have a job, they have their own house, you know, depending on what scenario you visualize in your head that you are imagining right now, they, you know, they might be married and have kids. And life is pretty good. And then, bam, COVID hits. And COVID hits, and it's now June of 2021. And the person that you visualized has lost her job. They're hurting. Because they've lost a job, they're also hurting financially. And maybe because they're hurting financially and because the market, you know, has been in a lot of turmoil over the last several months, maybe they're now having problems. You know, if you have them married or a girlfriend or they have a mortgage, maybe they're underwater in the mortgage. Maybe they're in arrears. Maybe because of everything, you know, their life that was pretty nice and okay this time last year is now they're arguing more. They're bitter more. This is a scenario that can take place over a period of time. And it causes depression. And as you can imagine, you know, especially when the market was in turmoil, it's obviously changing a bit now because as you're, you're leading the way again in the world where you're opening up, it's so great to see some of the videos of people just living life in certain parts of your country like Florida and Texas and down south. 
But imagine this person, you know, he, he's done nothing wrong. She's done nothing wrong. What's going to happen? They're going to feel hurt, right? They're going to feel dejected. And maybe that's the start of the depression and it just keeps going more and more and more. And what are those steps that happens then? They start to turn into anger. They start to look around and they start blaming other people. It was very easy to do, especially with COVID. I've done nothing wrong. The government came along. They lied to us. But, you know, anytime Donald Trump or anyone else was talking about, you know, the lab theory, you know, oh, no, that's, that's a conspiracy. Maybe now not so much, huh? Facebook is banning all these articles. No, you can't say, oh, no, you can't say that. Oh, no, we can't say, oh, Donald Trump is racist for saying the Wu flu. Oh, my God, he hates Chinese people. But no, we can have the Brazilian variant. We can have the Indian variant. We can have the Nepalese variant. No, that's totally fine. But Donald Trump, the, the Wu flu? Oh, my God. And you're hurt and you're angry. And you've lost your job and you see things getting more and more out of control. And then because it's you're in whatever field you're in, maybe you're really struggling to find work. You're lacking belief. You know, you're, whereas you were maybe decent in your field or a good worker and you were, you know, you were respected. Now, all of a sudden, because this has happened so many places around the country, all of a sudden now you're competing against people who are maybe younger than you or maybe have a better degree than you. But, you know, because of different rules and, you know, minimum wage, maybe this affects you, where all of a sudden the job market is pretty competitive and you can't get a job. And you're like, I've done nothing wrong and I can't get a job. And then you get to the next step, Ace. Where you're like, you know what? You start reminiscing about the past and you start going, you know what? Maybe, maybe my life, this was as good as it gets. Maybe March 2020 was the peak of my life. You know, maybe I'll never get another job that was as good as the last one. Maybe I'll never earn as much money as I've earned in the past. And you start believing this. And as you start believing that maybe your best days are behind you, you start lacking resilience. There's no fight. There's no give. There's no, yeah, no, we'll be better. Because there's voices in your head going, no, it won't. Best days are behind you. What you just have to do now is survive. And we build this up where, you know, even if you have a, an average job, we, if it's in hindsight or you don't have that anymore, all of a sudden in our heads, we make it better. I'll never earn as much money. I'll never work, you know, the same cushy hours or I'll never work with the same nice people especially if you go through joblessness. Maybe you've lost your wife or your partner. Maybe you've lost your house. It's very easy to get hurt and dejected and be angry and think the best days are behind you. And then invariably, you give up. You accept it. You accept that all the lies that you do. You've accepted that this is as good as it gets. It's over. You know, our future, well, it's just, let's just try and survive and let's, you know, not struggle. And then you compromise your standards. You compromise your principles. This is what happens to people who are depressed. This is what happens to people. And invariably what happens is if you have all these voices in your head and all these emotions, thoughts and actions are in, in linked. Thoughts influence actions and actions influence thoughts. So imagine you're that depressed person and all of a sudden now things are starting to open up. 
and you've gone through a year of hell and you're hurt and you're dejected and you're just, you've lost your kind of oomph. You've lost your confidence. You've lost your resilience. And all of a sudden now things are starting to open up and you start applying for, you continue to apply for jobs, but you're hurt, you're dejected, you're angry. Are you going to do a good interview? Are you going to do a good phone interview? All these thoughts that you have in your head, are they going to influence you to do a good interview or a bad interview? And then what happens then? The cycle gets even more vicious because now before it was different when there was no jobs and that was really hurtful and frustrating. But then guess what happens when you start seeing jobs and you start seeing the economy open up and you're doing phone interviews and doing interviews, but you're not getting a job, then the voices get even better. You see, I told you your best days were behind you. You were still, you just let resilience and you, oh, you think you can do better? <laughs> I told you you couldn't. And then your actions start, you know, re-verifying what your voice is telling you, your inner voice. And then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. This is what happens with depression. This is why you're starting to see mental health is always a big issue. And if you know my story, it's really personal to me. But this is what happens when you don't have any confidence. This is what happens when you're depressed. This is what happens naturally. Now, COVID has made this happen to people who were, quote unquote, normal and healthy prior to COVID. That's why you've seen depression go up. That's why you've seen suicide go up. So how do you break that cycle? The thing is, misery loves company. And you see, let's use that example of that person who's lost their job. There will be people around that person who will feed their hate, who will feed their anger, who will feed their despair, who will tell them, you know what? You've done nothing wrong. I'd be angry at them. I'd be angry at the media. I'd be angry at the politicians. I'd be angry at government. And while that's all credible and that's all factually true, if you build all that anger up, if you imagine that person, try and visualize what they would be feeling as we're going through this journey, do you think that's going to make you do a good interview? Do you think that's going to help you? Do you think building up all this resentment and all this hatred and anger is going to make you a better person? Or do you think it's going to keep bringing you down into the depths? It's going to start literally, you're putting a stone on your shoulders and you're becoming more heavier and dragged down. What does that person need? What does that person, if you saw that person ever, if that person was you, what does that person need? Does it need more anger and hatred and to listen to all the voices? Or do you need someone to sit up and go, look, through no fault of your own, you've been dealt a really crappy hand. But you know what? Your best days aren't behind you. Your best days are still in front of you. Yes, it's going to be tough. Yes, it's going to be hard. But you can do it. You've done it before. Look at what jobs you've done. Think of a younger you. Think of you at 17 years old or 18 years old, whenever you left school, and think of your last job. Do you think you would ever get there? Well, I might have liked to think that, but it would have been very hard. Exactly. You can do it again. You can get yourself back up. You need positive reinforcements. You need people around you going, you can't do this. Get up. Yes, it might take you a day, it might take you a week, it might take you a month, but get up and get back in the race. Start building, building resilience. Start changing your thought cycle because thoughts influence actions. So if you can start changing your thoughts, and this is very hard, I might make it sound very easy, but it is, can be virtually impossible at times. 
if your brain and your people around you are feeding you hate and anger. Start changing your thoughts. See, you start changing your outlook. You start changing your outlook. You start changing your actions. And then all of a sudden, you're a bit more positive. You start thinking, you know what? It's going to be hard, but you know what? I'm going to get my old job back. No, actually, you know what? I'm not going to get my old job back. I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to earn more money. I'm going to work with better people. I'm going to get a bigger house. I'm going to get a better life for myself. I'm going to get my wife back. I put on weight because I've been depressed and so angry at COVID. I put on weight. I'm going to lose that weight. I'm going to be better looking than I was before COVID. All of these things, whatever it is that you visualized, all take work. But they first require belief. They need you to inner, change the inner dialogue in your head, to start changing your outlook, to start changing your thoughts, to start changing your actions. Why did I start today's show with this? Because I love engaging with you guys, and we have a great relationship where you guys, you know, other people you might tweet publicly and stuff, but you guys message me privately and, you know, we talk. And, you know, we actually have real conversations. And by the way, you guys tell me when I'm wrong. And I always encourage it. I'm on social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, MeWe. I'm not on MeWe that much, but Facebook and Twitter, you know, message me and we can talk. You guys tell me, hey, I disagree with you on this. I disagree with you on that. Or, you know, you, this was a real good interview. The reason I did this is because over the last two, maybe three weeks, I think I've had nine, it might be 10 different people reach out to me and go, you know what? I'm really hurting about America, John. You know, you've always been so optimistic about America. I need a bit of your optimism right now. What can you give me? I'm hurting. I actually believe America's best days are behind her. I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated. So I said, you know what? I've talked to these people individually, but I said, if nine or 10 people are messaging similar messages about how you're just so distraught and you're so beaten up right now because of all the lies, all the BS, that if nine or 10 people are messaging me, there's a lot more people who listen to the show who won't message me are feeling the same thing. So how do we break this cycle? You see, the first thing we need to do is to understand the world we live in and actually take a step back from the political tribes. You see, the problem is, and I look at this, and I, I've become so disgusted at people I know on my side of the aisle, at some of their coverage. But if you look at what has been portrayed by a lot of media out there, and it's the same on the right, what are they pushing? Look at what we just spoke about. Think about what that person would say if it was a negative person hanging around that person who lost their job. Oh, it wasn't your fault. It was the politicians. It was Fauci. It was the Democrats. It was this. It's all this, you know, it's the media. There's all this fear and anger. It's almost like Yoda was right when he said in Star Wars, you know, that great documentary. Fear needs to anger. Anger needs to hate. Hate needs to suffering. It's almost like that was true, right? Look at America. Look at what you've been told day in and day out. You've been told to be afraid. It's constant on both sides of the aisle. The arguments differ. And some of them are true that you should be somewhat afraid, but don't let it paralyze you. And some of them are baloney. I saw your president, your wonderful, magnificent president, woke up long enough on Memorial Day to, to talk about white supremacy. White supremacy is, is, is such a, you know, it's worse than Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban and, and ISIS. It's white supremacy. Be afraid. 
You have COVID. <gasps> Be afraid. COVID is going to kill you. Wear one mask. Wear two masks. Wear no masks. Get vaccinated. Don't get vaccinated. All this rhetoric. Be afraid. Then you have from my friends on the right. Oh, my God. Joe Biden is president. Be afraid. We are so screwed. Oh, my God. The debt. No country has ever had this debt. I love my friends on the right now. And it's so hard. It's so frustrating for people like me who all of a sudden now the right have found the debt to be a problem again. It wasn't a problem the last four years, but now it's an issue we're back on board. And I welcome it. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. But it's so hard to, to actually take these cheap people credibly. The debt is so bad. Your politics is so bad. January 6th. Oh, my God, it, it was a threat on our democracy. You know you're not a democracy, you're a republic. It's a, it's a threat. We've, it's, it's, it's the darkest day in our history. You have the stolen election. All this stuff from all sides of the aisle. The economy, your jobs, the media sucks. What is all this doing? What are these emotions telling you? They're telling you fear and they're telling you anger. If you want to break the cycle, it's time to actually look at what's going on in your country and understand what we said about the individual, that thoughts influence actions. If you're walking around all angry and all hateful and all bitter and you're afraid, do you think you're going to change your life for the better? Go back to the example we gave, that individual looking for a job. If they're angry and they're bitter and they're annoyed and they're afraid, and they go get a job interview. Are they going to do a good interview? Or are they going to do a bad interview? So why is it different for your country as a collective? If you're all angry, if you're all bitter, if you're all afraid, are you going to have a positive future or a negative future? You see, the idea of individualism is it's very frustrating in some ways because you want to change the world. You want to, you know, make the world a better place. But the thing about it is, and this is the one thing the society, and Jordan Peterson speaks about a lot if you ever read his stuff. If you don't, I highly recommend it. But where he talks about all these people virtue signaling on both sides of the aisle, on social media. Oh, I, I would solve this big problem. I would solve climate change. I would solve the economy. And he's like, you know what? That's all great and all, but you can't. What you need to do is start, you know, tidy up your room, make your bed. It's, it's, a, it's a very simple principle, but there's truth to it. You know, focus in closer to yourself. Don't always look at the bigger picture. Look at what you can do in your life. How can you make your life better? How can you serve other people? But also understanding that what you need right now is to build up your resilience. Because if there's anything recent history has taught your nation or should have taught your nation is that you may go through a really bad time, Look, there's no one policy that Joe Biden is going to do that I'm going to be like, yeah, that's a great policy. Oh, yeah, we, 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 <laughs> this is brilliant, huh? No, uh, maybe he does, I don't know. But I highly doubt. I know who this guy is. I know who most of your politicians are. I'm not a fan of them. It's why I stay away from politics. But here's the thing. Your country is resilient. Think back to 2008 when Obama got in. Oh, my God, you have this guy who is Reverend Rice. He's a Marxist. He's a community organizer. His past record, what he did in Chicago. This is not a guy we can survive. And he won. 
And everyone thought it was over. And then fast forward to 2012. Oh, my God, we cannot survive four more years of Barack Obama. But Barack Obama won and you still survived, right? In fact, if you're a Donald Trump supporter, you should actually be somewhat more positive than other supporters because, hey, guess what? Eight years of Obama sucked, but it got you Donald Trump for four years. So why is it the exact same principle not relevant when Joe Biden is president? Why not stop looking at what Joe Biden is going to do and start building your future for tomorrow? What will Joe Biden lead to? Because what Joe Biden will lead to is all depending on your thoughts and your actions right now. Look, you're not going to go through fun times for the next four years. But what are you building to? You see, one of the things that you understand when you have depressed people and you have low confidence is a lot of your thing, because it wants to reinforce your values, is you always look to the past. You glorify the past, and you, but you're never out looking to the future. You're not building your future. That's one of the things we need to understand about politics. We always reimagine the past. And we're always looking at, oh, if only Donald Trump was still president. Oh, if only, you know, January 6th hadn't happened. Oh, if only COVID hadn't happened. Oh, if only we hadn't done this. We need to start looking to the future. And we need to start building the building blocks for the future. Is it going to be easy? No. I'm not going to BS you. I'm not, going to, I'm not the show to listen to going, hey, you know what? Be afraid. I'm not that show. But I'm also not the show that's going to go, everything's going to be fine and dandy and we're all going to sing Kumbaya and we all like do ring a ring a rosy uh, in the French, um, in the garden. Or, you know, if we're French, you know, sing Ferre Jacques, Ferre Jacques. That ain't me. I'll tell you, things are going to be really tough. But you have to build a resilience. You have to believe that right now, this day sucks and tomorrow may suck and the next four years may suck. But after that, there can be brighter days ahead of us. But how do you get to those bright days? How do you build a future? How do you build a sustainable future? No, I'm not talking about going green and all electric and let's remove all carbon. No, I'm not talking about that type of sustainable future. I'm talking about understanding why America was an exceptional nation. It's coming up to Independence Day. If you want to annoy me, please say happy 4th of July to me, because that is one thing that pees me off. It's Independence Day. We need to start understanding and this Independence Day is special because it's 400 years since the pilgrims arrived. What made America an exceptional nation? What do we need to build for tomorrow? What future do we need to build? Is it all about building around Donald Trump? Is that going to make America great again? Because I put out a question on social media this week. It's name one thing you would do to solve the American economy. Oh, get Donald Trump in office. Really? Was everything so rosy under Donald Trump from the economy? What about the debt? What about your spending? What about government? There are plenty of things that we can change. You can take the good things Donald Trump did, but he's not going to solve everything. Also, if you understand the Constitution, the presidency has no power. How do you solve this? Is it about understanding that we need more Republicans? We need a Republican to have the House and the Senate? Really? Is, this, is, is that what you're about? Because let me tell you this. If you actually believe that, then you're not an exceptional nation. Because here's the thing. If that is the answer, more Republicans than Donald Trump, then guess what? We could export them to the Ireland, and Ireland would be great again. Or to England or to Australia. 
If that's all it takes, if it just takes a certain politician to make your country and to solve your country's problems, then any country can be great. Your country's not great. At the end of every show, I say it. You're not great because of your politicians. You're not great because of Trump or Biden or Pelosi or McCarthy or, or McConnell or any of those other schmucks in D.C. You're great because of your people. You're great because of your ideas. What future do you want to start building around? And don't say this thing, which I see a lot of my friends on social media go, oh, you know what the future of the Republican Party is? It's Ron DeSantis. Really? If that is the case, and I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing anyone, if it's Donald Trump in 2024, if it's Ron DeSantis, cool. Let's decide that in 2024. How about we actually understand where we are now? It's 2021. What can we do? Is it just rallying around someone? Or can we actually start explaining ideas? and start making America an exceptional nation again, making America constitutional again. Let's see you start changing the world. Is it going to be easy? No. It's going to be damn hard. But I would ask you, the people who are like, I just can't. At what point in time in American history has that ever been an acceptable answer? Look at what you've achieved. Was your revolutionary easy? No. Go read about Thomas Jefferson as we approach the Declaration of Independence. Was that easy? Was that universally accepted? Did it take work for Thomas Jefferson to go, hey, let's write this Declaration of Independence and get approval from the Constitutional Convention to write it? Was it easy to do to, you know, fight the revolution? Was it easy then when you won the revolution to get the Constitution? Bearing in mind, if you think it was, why did it take the revolution starting in 1776 and to get 1787 to get your constitution? Was it easy to get the Bill of Rights? Oh, well, it was easy. Then why did it take from 1787 to 1791 to get to the Bill of Rights? Was it easy to win the Civil War? Was it easy to win World War II? Was it easy to go to the moon? Was the roar in 20s easy? Was tearing down that wall, was that easy? History shows in your country and around the world, it is not easy. It is damn hard. It will push you to your limits. But guess what? If you actually have that resilience to start building a better world, if not for yourself, for your future generations, for your kids, your grandkids, to hand them off a chance, an opportunity at surviving, at thriving, at bringing their solutions to the world. If you want to live that, that's what we need to start living. We need to start building those building blocks. We need to start being inspired by the past and been focused to the future. Because here's the truth. A truth that no one ever wants to seem to say anymore. That right here, right now, when you're listening to this show, this is the best time to be alive. Yes, we've got a lot of baloney. We've got a lot of BS. But look at, despite all that baloney, despite all that BS, look at what comforts we have. There is not a better time to be alive. You have so much comfort. You have phones, you have technology, you have heat, you have indoor plumbing, you have access to technology. You can phone anywhere in the world. You can see people. It's amazing. You can go for food. Look at the selection of food you have. There has never been a better time to be alive. But if we don't change our course, if we don't stop understanding that we need to stop the fear, stop the anger, stop the hate, stop the government, then guess what? It won't be long. We won't be able to say that long. In 2024, maybe we won't be able to say that. But how do we turn things around? 
Because here's the thing that I want to do, and I want to do it with you. Because America always loves this. It shows this in its movie, and its culture, and its way of thinking. America loves a comeback story. How about we start writing the best comeback story man has ever known? The reemergence of America, the idea. The idea of the individual being sovereign. The idea of limited government. The idea that you have a God-given right to pursue your happiness. What is more powerful than that? And if you're going to do that, do you think you can do that with anger, with fear, with hatred? Or do you think you have need to have a bit of resilience, a bit of optimism? Seeing the world as a place of no limitations, of endless possibilities. Choice is yours. Robert Murphy. He is an Austrian economist. He is on a great website, which I use all the time. It's Mises.com. And we wanted to talk today about the economy, but we wanted to do it in a different way. Um, your Vice President, Kimala Harris, um, over last weekend, um, apart from wishing everybody a great long weekend and totally forgetting what the actual day weekend was actually about, on pending up in Forbes, basically saying, well, what we need to do is because of COVID and because of all these regulations and because the economy is on its knees, we need to reimagine the American economy. And as you can imagine, it was filled with grandiose plans of childcare, of infrastructure bills. And what I thought would be fun to do is to actually, let's have two people who are sort of conservative, libertarian leaning, who are free market people, who come from different backgrounds, to actually take this opportunity to reimagine the American economy in a market point of view. So I'm joined now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first off, one of the things I think is really important to understand is you come from just a definition. You're more of an Austrian economics point of view. Can you give people who mightn't be familiar with that definition, just so people know where you're coming from on this part of the debate, what that definition will be or what you, you know, some principles you would, you know, ascribe to? Sure thing. Right. So it, so the Austrian school is just a school of economic thought, just like there's the Chicago school or the Keynesian school. Um, so the Austrians, and obviously where the term comes from is the original founders happen to be from Austria. Um, so they, but, but nowadays, many self-described Austrian economists like me are uh, from the United States and other places. So it's, it tends to be very free market in terms of its policy prescriptions, but, but it is, you know, an objective school of economic thought. Um, one of the Two, two of the big founders of this school or developers were Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, um, people whom many of your listeners may have heard of. And uh, I guess I would say, besides them being very skeptical of government intervention in terms of being able to promote good outcomes for the economy, the, the uniquely Austrian contribution is that they have a, a view of what causes the business cycle and that they think that it's artificially low interest rates fuels an unsustainable boom that then inevitably leads to a crash. And so that's why I think it's important for um, people on the right in particular to, to be aware of the Austrian school and its contributions, because what central banks are, have been doing, you know, since 2008, basically, in my view, is just setting the world up for recurring boom-bust cycles. 
Absolutely. So just before we get into reimagining the converse, uh, the economy, one quick question for you, just from my point of view, is I see the word free trade and I see a lot of people out there going, I'm a free trader. And then when I talk to them, they are very much free trade, but there is some exclusions to free trade. So they'll go, I'm a free trader, but if A, B and C happens, then I'm not, then the government should intervene. Is there a time from your point of view, just for, you know, that government should be involved? Are you free trade absolutist? So, so me personally, um, I'm, pr- I guess you would say an absolutist in the sense that I don't want the federal government coming in and them deciding on my behalf, you know, which people around the world I'm allowed to trade with or what terms I'm allowed to do it on. So in terms of morality, like if, if I personally knew that some company was employing slave labor in China or some other country, you know, I personally wouldn't want to buy products from them, but I wouldn't want to outsource those moral decisions to people in Washington, DC, for example. So I wouldn't want them deciding on my behalf who I'm allowed to trade with, if, if that's what you mean. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, it's good to hear because I see so many people and I try and have this, because I make no bonds, I'm an absolutist free trader. There's mm. very few, like, and I bar like, you know, hype World War Three, and I mean real World War Three. I don't mean phony World War Three. bar short of that, that is pretty much like, you know, should, because people always ask me when I say I'm a free trade absolutist, should, you know, should we trade with Iran? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, my answer would be as an individual, probably not because of their human rights abuses, but also I want me to make that decision, you know, and I want you to make that decision. I'll, I'll put the case of why you shouldn't buy Iranian products, especially if they're linked to the government, but I don't want a, a mandate from on high going no Iranian products. And I think that's just, a, it's a fundamental difference. So yeah. if I could also just jump into yeah. it's um, along that point too, I think in practice too, and there, there, there have been, I think, you know, studies to suggest this that it's, you know, when, like, if there is some hostile regime somewhere and the U.S. government imposes sanctions or whatever, a lot of times w- what that will do in practice is just impoverish the middle class in that region. It doesn't actually topple the dictators. Like, so for the United States, they had sanctions and embargoes in various forms against Cuba for decades, and that didn't make Fidel Castro fall out of power. In yeah. fact, in, in a lot of cases, it gives the, you know, the local dictator the prestige, you know, or, you know, the, the patriotism of the people put up with his police state tactics or whatever, because now, oh, this outside force like the U.S. is against us. And so that, you know, gives a rally around the flag uh, effect. So a, a lot of times it's the middle class who actually pose the threat to the, you know, the strong man and trade sanctions actually just hurt the, re- the regular people in that country. They don't necessarily oust the ruler. Absolutely. Um, so getting back to let's reimagining the U.S. economy. So let's say America's in a really lucky situation where we have the power. Um, and forget the Constitution for a second, because I always say the easiest answer is if you want to solve 99% of the problems in the economy, it's an easy answer for me. You follow the Constitution because you understand the president has no power. Article 1, Section 8, Congress has very limited scope of what it can do. Everything else is left up to the states. A lot of these problems are solved. But let's actually add more beat, meat to the bone. So for me, the number one issue, that, and because it literally, because of human history, there are many things that can destroy economy. You know, you can talk about you know a foreign enemy you can talk about terrorism you can talk about big government the only one that has a proven track record that will definitely destroy you is uh, massive and massive amounts of federal debt and your current current debt is 28 trillion dollars so for me that you know to reimagine the american economy that's where it has to start would you agree or disagree 
Yeah, I agree. And it's um, yeah, in terms of like the percentage of GDP that just in the last few years, yeah, it has just exploded. Um, and, you know, and there's various reasons for that with COVID being one. But but again, it's it's sort of like psychologically, once people got used to deficits being bigger than a trillion dollars, now all of a sudden that that's no big deal anymore. Um, and, and so you're right. It's it's particularly alarming that even in a, in a situation, even before COVID hit, where um, the economy was, you know, unemployment was very low and whatever, and, and still it, there weren't, they weren't running budget surpluses then. So it, it used to be the idea of, oh, when times are bad and during an economic crisis, you go ahead and run big budget deficits. But then when times are good, you're supposed to run surpluses to try to balance it out. And, and that's gone out the window at this point. And that was a very, that's, by the way, that's a very socialist idea of thinking. That's a very mainline socialist opinion over here where they kind of have that. It's kind of, it's not real pure socialism, but it's kind of socialism with maybe a hint of realism that, you know, that you kind of have that understanding that, you know, you have to have deficits, you know, because when the economy is not good, you know, more people are unemployed, more benefits, more needy, less taxes go down. So you have to run that. But when the, the thinking goes, then when the economy gets better, less benefits out, more taxation in, you should do it. So that's, you know, even in socialist circles, that'd be kind of accepted. It's just been thrown out the book. So how would you, if you were sort of, were green on spending, how would you sort of bring in the federal debt? What would your, what would your kind of key points be? Um, well, like you said, one obvious thing would be if you just return to constitutionally authorized uh, powers of the federal government, that would probably get rid of 90 plus percent of the U.S. budget right, right there. So, I mean, there's that's one uh, approach to it. Um, I So I've, I've outlined elsewhere, like in some of my writings, just going through, depends, you know, how detailed you want to get into it. But there's plenty of areas where they could easily cut hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of spending and just the things that aren't even that, you know, difficult or controversial. Um, and also too, you could, there's ways you could raise revenue. There's, there's plenty of assets the federal government owns things like they own a bunch of oil, you know, in terms of like their strategic stockpile, but also offshore resources that they could auction off. They own a bunch of the, the federal government is the biggest landowner in the United States, things like that. You know, there's lots of resources that the federal government could auction off too, in terms of, you know, to try to bring down the deficit. Um, but, but, but yes, it's, I mean, it's across the board in terms of the spending. I mean, all so the unemployment give, relief and so forth. So if you want to, we'll get to the, the raise in the revenue, because I think that's an absolute key point of view. And I think it's a great thing to do. Um, but if you were sort of, you said you've written some articles, we can go into as much detail as you're, you're comfortable with. But, you know, like I was doing some research because one of the frustrating things for me as an Irish person is, you know, with Americans is I try and teach them. This whole show is about teaching your education, teaching how great your founders were, but also teaching, you know, how great men influenced your country. And one of the things I, I really find frustrating is, and this is, you know, even on the right, is the ignorance of some people who they don't appreciate Calvin Coolidge and what yeah. Calvin Coolidge did. And, you know, I was just doing some notes for someone else and I actually brought them to here for prep because it was like, it's actually something good to talk about was, you know, look at some of the stuff, how he cut government. You know, he cut highway spending by 13%, you know, which is a big thing today in your country because, well, since Obama, it's been like roads and bridges. The, the infrastructure is crumbling. You know, every bridge is falling down in your country. Um, you know, he reduced the amount of federal workers in D.C. by 4%. Um, he cut veteran pensions by 13%. Um, there was a big issue back in his presidency about flood control on the Mississippi River. He cut it by 64%. It was like, that's a state issue. 
And um, so, like, you know, as you, the reason I'm bringing up these few points is there's a lot of, you know, people that would ruffle the feathers on the right, but also on the left. But that's how you have to do it to, to rein in spending. So what would be some of the so what were some of the articles you've written about? Um, sure. And just on that, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think every year that he was in office, uh, Coolidge ran a budget surplus, too. Yes, so, that, was, yeah. that was one of the huge things. And that's yep. something you haven't done since the 50s. Yep. Yep. So um, I would. So, for example, I have a proposal for Social Security. And so, and so you know, the entitlement problem in the U.S. is one of the, the demographic time bombs. And so there was, you know, I have a way of uh, I came up with a pr- proposal where because if you think about what's happening, and there's a sense in which um, with these programs like Social Security, it's take it's taxing existing workers for promises that, oh, when you retire, we're going to pay you down the road. So there's a sense in which it's forcing workers to lend money to the federal government. If, you know, that's one way of thinking of it because it's taxing money today out of their paycheck and then down the road, it's going to start paying them a pension. And yeah. so it's like forced lending. And if you run the numbers, like in terms of the implicit rate of return that the workers are getting on those loans to the government, it's a pretty low rate. Like the, the workers could earn more, you know, through other conventional ways of, of saving for retirement. And at the same time, I haven't checked recently, but it was also that the government could borrow on lower terms, just going out to the open market. In other words, the rate of return, like the, the yield on long-term treasury bonds was lower than what the government was implicitly promising to the workers through social security. So it was this weird thing where the workers were being forced to lend at a rate lower than they would get if they could save on their own, but the government was paying more than it could do if it just directly borrowed from the, the market. And so I said, well, that's silly. Why don't you know, we just get rid of the middleman and, and, and allow workers to opt out and, you know, and make it voluntary? In other words, if you, want, if you want to just stay in the Social Security program, go ahead with the same rules you know, and payoffs and whatever. But if you want to opt out, then go ahead. And for people that the government was going to make money on net from, like they could just you know, pay a lump sum in order to just get out and, then be, and not have a Social Security tax anymore. So I, I, you know, I had a, a whole proposal for that, for how you could – and that would contain – the portion of the budget where it starts exploding, where you, as people get older, social security costs go through the roof. Um, I mean, that's a, and that's a great one. Like this, you know, one of the things that like, if you follow the rhetoric, especially from our friends mm-hmm. on the left, who will be like, "Oh, you want to cut social security? You know, you hate old people. You know, you want to push grandma off a cliff and stuff." And uh, one of the frustrating things for me is because I remember actually, I think it was about ten years ago, someone because you know I'm 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 not I don't have a college degree, so everything I know has been kind of either forced learning and sitting down and, and sort of reading stuff and reading stuff several times and researching stuff. But I remember I had someone sitting down about 10 years ago about Social Security. He was a very libertarian thinker. And he kind of went, I think he was like at a minimal rest imprint. If they put in the same amount of money that they pay in taxes with a 1% growth, they would get just more than what they had already got. And that's a 1% growth over their career. And now when you think of, you know, the economy prior to the last sort of five, six years, it was 3%, 2%, 4%. Obviously, then you have a bit of a bust, but then it goes back up over the course of it. There's no way that, you know, even with a 1% growth, they're going to come out less off than they get from the government. You know, this should be a free market thing. This should be that unites everyone that goes, hey, we can solve our debt. We can solve our government problem. But guess what? Granny and Grandpa, who you say we want to push off the cliff, gets more money. And it should be an easy thing, but we don't seem to be able to sort of verbalize these thoughts or make it sort of become common knowledge. Right, exactly. And, and just for the reason you say, that's why I was saying just make it an opt-out system. In other words, if people want to stay in, they're allowed to, but for those who want to get out, so that way you know nobody can accuse you of 
you know, heartlessly cutting programs. You could say, no, anyone who wanted to stay in with the existing system, you know, let them do that. Um, another example would be you brought up, you know, college education. So there's lots of federal money that's spent um, for, for education at various levels. And I think there's, you can make a strong case just to get rid of that altogether. And, and the reason being, there's, this, there's a lot of research showing that particularly once you get into the higher levels of education, it's, it's largely an arms race, right? So in other words, um, when, a, when a firm is trying to hire somebody and you know, one person has a, a, a college degree and the other person does it, it's not really that the firm opts for the person with the college degree because they care that the person, you know, that the person read Beowulf or something in, in, in college. It's just because it's a signal, right? Yeah. That the kind of person who's able to go ahead and complete a college degree is probably better to be, you know, show up for work and, you know, to take instruction and whatever. And so it, it's, it's sort of like, but the, the way I try to motivate for people, if that sounds crazy, is to say, can we all agree it would be silly if it became the norm that everyone had to get a PhD? We could all agree, no, that would be tying people up in college, you know, in, in higher education. For no, no, that's, that's a step too far. Right. And so I'm saying, why do we just assume that everybody ought to go be getting a bachelor's degree? Like that, that, yeah. that shouldn't be the, you know, the, for certain fields, yes, but the federal government shouldn't be paying everyone to keep, to stay out of the workforce for an extra four or five years. And so I, I think, you know, there'd be a, like a, you know, a transition process, but if they just, if, if, if the government stopped supporting higher education so much, the main thing that would end up happening is tuition would come down, right? So that's, like, the, that's the other thing. But the, mm -hmm. the frustrating thing for me is kind of like, how do you explain these things to people that you're actually, you, you, you come from this, even with, let's give them the benefit of doubt, which they would never in a million years give us, that they have the purest intentions in the world. They just want to, they, they're just acting out of love, you know, they, and they genuinely are. But if you look at the college tuition, like it's like, if you look at the inflation figures year on year, you know, of what things go up and down, College is always, if not the top, right at the top. And it's been for the like, last 20 years. Why is it that, that it's so expensive? Like you're actually saying to people, you have to go to college and here's all this free money. Well, what, in what world, you know, even if you're coming at it from a basic economics where you've never done stuff and you don't know much about it, you just know a small bit. Do you think if you throw money at it and you're telling everyone you have to get it, that prices are going to come down and that the consumer gets a good deal? It never happens. Right, exactly. And also, too, just in more recent years, I think is, it's become apparent, certainly in the U.S., I can't speak to other countries, but it's, it's not as if the average American undergrad student is getting this truly, you know, renaissance education and they're learning all sorts of great philosophy and math and science and so forth and literature. Like, they really are, especially depending on which schools you're talking about, they, it's, um, you know, not learning very much so it's really oh, just no, no. Postponing. I, won't you, I won't hear that now no no you will not just you will not say bad things about humanities courses on this <laughs> on this show they are so wonderful <laughs> yeah. but yeah absolutely so it this is the i think one of the things that we need to try and do is and i mean as a as a sort of group on the right is to try and break down the free market because a lot of these problems you know even you know we've talked about education we've talked about spending the you know the free market you know social security the free market gives a great alternative to these things the other thing i think is really frustrating for me is i've seen it happen in your country and it's gone this way since george bush and then obama made it worse was healthcare. Right. you know you know healthcare. you know costs are 28 percent of your budget 
um, and it's going higher and higher and higher and higher. And I can see you getting more and more towards the type of medicine I grew up in Ireland, where socialized medicine is not very good. This idea that you have this right to healthcare, guess what? I have a right to healthcare in Ireland. That does not mean I have a right to treat. You know, like if you if you don't hit certain criteria, you don't get treated. You know, if you're too old, you don't get a new hip. You know, if you're if you're hit so old, you don't get you know um, a laser eye surgery because you know you're at the end of your days and you had a good life, so give up. Um, wh- what can we do? What would you say? Obviously, my answer again would be the free market. You know, get people off, get insurance plans. You know, open state lines on. You know, where this idea and um, which I I when I came across, it, I was like, this is the most kind of. And un-American, I hate using that word, but, you know, where only insurance companies, you can only trade in this state. Why don't you just open the state lines and let, you know, insurance go here, here, if it wants to go. Let the market dictate and let's bring prices down. What would you say? Yeah, you're exactly right. And I should stress for, you know, listeners who who are outside of the United States, there's this, the U.S. has this reputation. There's like the Wild West when it comes to healthcare and we're laissez-faire, and it, that's not true at all. Like, I do a lot of consulting work for, for Canada, and I know Canadians have this image of the U.S. As, as being, you know, pure capitalism with healthcare. In fact, the U.S. government um, spends as much on healthcare, I believe, as the Canadian government. It's just the private sector also spends a bunch more. And so, like, you know, in terms of share of the economy, U.S. expenditures are much higher than Canadian. But it's not because it's all the private sector. It's the U.S. government does just about as much. Um, and so, and in, in particular, just as a, as a regular patient or, you know, people in my household, when I'm, you know, helping them go and deal with the healthcare bureaucracy, you, if you have a procedure that you need to have done here, they won't tell you ahead of time how much it's going to cost. You have to go get the procedure and then later they will tell you what the bill is. And so I, you know, I tell Americans, imagine if the car market worked like that. Imagine, you know, for real, if when you had to go buy a new car, you went to the dealership and you looked at the model and you picked it out and only after you signed and you were legally responsible for that vehicle, then they would tell you what the price was. And it, yeah, I said, can you imagine how expensive cars would be in that kind of a framework? And that's what's happening with healthcare because it's the you know third parties, whether it's insurance or the federal government through Medicare or Medicaid pays most of the cost. And so you as a patient, if your doctor says, oh, go get this test, you don't say, well, how much is it? Is it really worth it? You just go get it. And then later you get a bill and your insurance covers most of it. And then you hope, you know, the portion that you're responsible for isn't too catastrophic. So, I, you know, that's really the, the, the problem ultimately. And so to answer your question, I think part of the way to, to get that down is, um, like you say, to, to open up healthcare. So one thing is there's, there's a lot of restricted competition. Um, and so in terms of it, a lot of this is from state regulation, but at the federal level, Things like, you know, why are, why are drug prices so high? Well, it's partly because of the, of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Right now, drug companies, to bring a new drug to market, have to spend more than a billion, that's billion with a B, dollars on research and development on average to bring a new, just because of all the, you know, tr- tests and trials and stuff that they have to go through. So I'm saying there's, there's lots of restrictions like that, that if they were to open that stuff up to just say, for example, you could still have an FDA... And they could still have experts giving guidance to, to patients about, you know, whether we think these drugs are safe, but then they could just give the freedom and say, however, if your doctor recommends it, you know, you, you can buy what you want. And, you know, yes. and, that, and that would bring prices down tremendously, for example. So um, I, I think ultimately it's, it's sort of like with the college thing. If the government is going to keep paying for it and subsidizing it, prices are going to keep going up. So likewise with healthcare the things that the government subsidizes the most are the ones where prices keep rising. And it's sort of like this vicious spiral 
where the government keeps spending more and then prices keep going up. So they have to spend more. And the only way to break out of that is if they stop supporting it so much. So, so that would be my answer there. And yes, all the things you're mentioning, there's lots of silly regulations like limiting insurance, being able to cross state lines and things like that. But I think ultimately the problem is the government, it's a two pronged thing. They're restricting competition through, you know, regulation that, uh, you know, insists on things and, and the states do it too, in terms of medical licensing and then they also prop up demand by having third-party payment. And so if you restrict supply and increase demand, of course, prices are going to go through the roof. Absolutely. And then like some of the, like some of the products that you charge for, I remember I, I, someone I knew was in hospital in your country and uh, they were going through their, they, you know, they, they got their, whatever the procedure was. I can't remember what it was. It wasn't like life-threatening or something. And then they got their bill and it's itemized and different things. And I, I'm going to, I'm not going to say the right word, but like it was something like, um, dietary supplement, a hundred bucks a day. Mm-hmm. And she goes like, anyway, long story short, like, cause she, she was like, what the hell dietary supplement? They didn't give me anything. Anyway, it turns out it was Jello. Now it wasn't called dietary supplement. It was, it was, it was worded a lot fancier, but she was right. like a hundred bucks a day for Jello. What, you know, what did I have caviar? But you know, right. you have this because, it, but the thing was, I said, well, why? Now she, she was different, but the average person who got that was like, well, why don't you complain about it? Ah, the insurance has got it. You know, they paid it and it's, you know, that's what I pay my premiums for. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what you pay your premiums for. You pay your premiums to go in and get your procedure and your bed. And if you're going under, you know, anesthetic or you got to pay for the surgeon and different things, you're not paying for jello. And that those costs, guess what happens? You might think it's free, but it's not. You're paying it in the next premium or someone else is paying it. And there's no competition to bring it down or to chase it around when you have this type of, you know, government system kind of just propping everything up. things that really frustrates me is is that i love people I, i'll talk to anyone from either side of the aisle i love people who come up with ideas and i love i spend a lot of time in new york and i have a lot of friends and stuff there but i remember i don't know if you do you know larry sharp of him when he ran for was it governor or mayor there yeah yeah i mean i, yeah. I don't know him personally that yeah. well but yeah, oh, no, i know you've heard yeah. But no, I remember, sure. like, one of the ideas which I thought was fascinating was like, you know, what we need to do is, you know, one of the things I would do is look at renaming the George Washington Bridge and getting money from that and, you know, naming it the Apple Bridge or the Amazon Bridge. And if you have these big companies named after it, it's going to be in their vested interest to look after it because you don't want to be crossing the Amazon Bridge and like it's a pile of, you know, you know, BS and like, you know, it's, it's littered and there's graffiti and everything. And like the outrage was like, how could you do this? This is like the most Oh my God, this, the, the worst decision, like, you know, it was literally like they swear, you know, you were told, you know, you're, you're, you're going to die tomorrow. There was that much outrage about it. But like, there is a lot of solutions for America if, you know, to get debt debt under control, to get, you know, back into, you know, to reduce the debt by looking at the national resources. Those type of plans, you know, are you in favor of those? Are you open to those ideas? Do you, do you think they have a lot of potential? Um, so, right, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but but yes, in terms of like how could it, how could the government, not just the federal but state and local, you know, how how could they get on a firmer fiscal foundation without raising taxes? And yeah, that that was my idea. They could auction off a bunch of things, um, and yeah, and return to the private sector. And so yeah, in especially in big cities, you know, I I went to New York University for grad school, so I lived in in New York City or the surrounding area. For many years and so i'm familiar with it and yeah i mean just 
the, the roads and bridges there, that's a terrible use of quote public resources because they don't charge enough. And so that, that's why there's traffic jams. And so you've got some of the most productive people in the country just sitting in traffic for hours each day just because of the mismanagement of the resource. And so, yes, if they privatized all that stuff, it's not merely that, like, it, like you say, that they would, you know, they would watch graffiti and whatever, but they would charge prices at peak times to help keep the traffic flowing. And then, you know, you say, oh, well, that, they would make a little bunch of money. That would be unconscionable. Right. And that would give incentive for them to build more highways and bridges. You know, yeah. a, that's what happens in a market economy. There's a huge demand for something. They provide more. So, um, so yeah. But I, also I think, in, a, in a culture where apparently like bridges are falling every day in your country, according to your presidents anyway, where like they're crumbling bridges. Do you think the Amazon bridge, for example, or I can name anyone, the Tesla bridge, you think that's going to crumble and fall? Could you imagine the PR nightmare if it actually did? You know, so there is right. vested interest. You know, the idea of competition, the idea of free markets, you know, solves a lot of these problems again because, you know, they don't want that. Like, can you imagine what, uh, like, just take it from the stock price. You know, even if, you know, one person died on the bridge collapse because it was the Amazon bridge, can you imagine what would happen to Amazon's price? We're going to 10%, 20%, you know, because there'd be a panic. Right. And, and it's, and also to the, the virtue of just introducing competitions. So because, yeah, right now, if there's a poorly designed intersection, you know, and there's areas in, in various cities where like every, the locals know, oh, watch out, that's a really bad intersection. A lot of people die there. And yet that's never blamed on the government or the city planners. That's just, oh yeah, people, you know, need to be more careful there or something. Whereas you're right, if, if it were a particular company owned that intersection and another company owned a different one, and then there were excess deaths on the one that people would be mad at that particular company. Whereas now it's just like, oh, well, the government, what are you going to do? You're you going to change your vote for mayor because of that one dangerous intersection? You know, probably not. So I, I think you're, you're absolutely right that by breaking this stuff up, so it's not just the government in charge of infrastructure, but it's particular owners in charge of particular intersections or, or portions of the interstate or what have you, that, that yes, or our particular bridge there'd be a lot more accountability. So it's, it's not that the people running a company are inherently smarter than the engineers that the government might hire, but it's the system that there's just more inbuilt accountability. And that's ultimately what you would want. Awesome. So, and then, so what other, you know, sort of assets, quote unquote, that America has, you know, at the federal level, would you, would you support like looking into maybe selling? Oh, so there's like the, the federal government owns a lot of um, crude oil stored up. It's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And so I think they could auction that off and you know, transfer control into private hands. There's also a bunch of oil and other mineral resources that are in offshore deposits, you know, things that are just you know, like right off the coast that right now it's, it's either completely off limits or it's very limited to what, you know, and so the government right now will occasionally like lease, give, give oil companies or whatnot leases to go explore. But I think, yeah, they could just outright auction that off and, you know, get it into private hands. Um, so yeah, there's, depending on how you run the numbers, there's easily hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of, of resources like that. And I said, just a bunch of real estate. So a lot of it is desert land in the West that probably nobody wants anyway. But I think there are you know, there is plenty of real estate that the government owns. They, they even own just a bunch of like office buildings and things like that, that just over the years they've accumulated just because it's this huge behemoth and, and owns a bunch of things. So yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff the federal government uh, could sell off to raise revenue in the short term if they were trying to get spend, you know, bring spending down without raising taxes. Absolutely. And this is absolutely critical right now because of what the 
Joe Biden announced, was it maybe a week ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, where um, he wants 30% of America to be owned by the federal government by 2030. And if you actually read into it, it's 50% by 2050. Um, can you imagine, you know, because it's for economic or uh, climate, you know, uh, conservation and different things, because basically that means if you read the whole plan, it's, it's, I haven't had the chance to read it all because it's, it's mind-numbingly boring. Um, but it's, uh, as, I'm, I know that would shock you about government programs or uh, government budgets and ideas. Like they're not, they're not fun reads, no, um, but no. there's a lot of, you know, there's nothing going to happen on this land, which is, is going to be, is going to be absolutely crazy, but also it's an assault on federalism. So, you know, these ideas is something we need to, to really discuss with people and get more people open-minded to, you know, states more controlling their budget. So then we get on to taxation and I'm going to bring you back to, to Calvin Coolidge, um, if you don't mind. Because one of the things that is incredible, um, again, this I found this out 10, 12, 15 years ago in your country was um, that even a person who's like, a, you know, a tax accountant who, you know, does accounts all day, every day, that's their job, wouldn't struggle to do their own taxes because, you know, if they're not a tax specialist. And, um, you know, Calvin Coolidge, one of the things he did was when he got into the office, there was 50 tax brackets and he brought down to 23 the tax rates when he went in were 4% and the highest was 58%. By him leaving office, it was 1.5% and 25% was the highest. Now, you would think, oh, my God, if you listen to the media and the liberal media and stuff, you kind of go, oh, my God, they, they obviously went up crazy. And, you know, taxation went down. It didn't. The opposite happened. And as you said, he was the, one of the only presidents in history to have a, a budget surplus every, every month and, or every year. And you had the roaring 20s. Why is taxation, reducing taxation so important in your eyes? Yeah, you're you're right um, about the, the I, I know the the general trend of what you're talking about that um, it was I guess it was under Warring Harding I believe it started with and it, it started was, yeah um, yeah it was um, Andrew Mellon is the you know the famous tre Treasury Secretary so yeah because what happened what just for the listeners to re remember the time frame here that it was in World War One you know going into that that the U S introduced the federal income tax and then. It was supposed to, it, it was billed in the beginning just as a, you know, oh, it's just a very light tax on the super rich. And then pretty soon, yeah, they had all sorts of brackets and the top rate was incredibly yeah. high. And God so, yeah, bless Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, yeah. And so then after the World War I ended, then they, they did start bringing it down. And the theory was, it, nowadays we would call it supply side economics, but it was an early um, version of that where they, they realized that with these very high marginal rates, you know, such that the highest income earners for the last dollars they're earning, you know, they're given 50 plus percent to the government. Your incentive isn't to go generate more income at such a, you know, it gets taxed at such a high rate. Instead, you go look for tax exempt investments. And so instead of people investing, you know, where they thought there'd be the greatest rate of return, instead, they were just looking around for tax exempt bonds and things like that. So that was part of the theory behind it that they, you know, if you go read their understanding of why they were doing it, Besides just, you know, thinking the federal government really shouldn't be taking this much from people that, yeah, yeah. they realize this, this is going to unleash people. And as you say, tax, you know, the, the tax base expanded so much that even though the, the percentage rate was lower, total revenue actually went up over the 20s. Um, and so and so, yeah, I, I would say the same thing nowadays that, you know, if, if, if someone were taking my advice in terms of what should the federal government do, I would you know, ideally get rid of the income tax altogether if that's not considered feasible certainly, you know, making it flatter, you know, br bringing down those, those top rates. Because the, the idea is, in terms of, this is standard economics, that, um, you know, public finance theory, that what you want to do is raise revenue in a way that distorts the economy as little as possible. 
And so, you know, you want to have as broad a base as possible with as low a rate to, you know, to get whatever the target revenue is, because the higher the rate, the more you penalize that activity and you make people avoid it just because of the tax. And so you, you don't want people altering their behavior based on the tax code because that, you know, that's not reflecting the real scarcity of the world and so forth. That's just an arbitrary feature of the tax code. So yet you, you don't want political decisions affecting where people invest their money, things like that. So the, the theory behind it is, yes, you want to have as low rates as possible. Um, and what's interesting, too, is I'll just point out people on the left, if they want to um, you know, deal with climate change, what do they do? They say, oh, let's have a carbon tax to make businesses invest in non-carbon intensive activities. And yet when, when they say, oh, let's have a really high tax on millionaires and people on the right warn that, well, that's going to redu reduce investment. They say, oh, no, it won't. You're just fear mongering. People don't respond to taxes that way. So, yeah. you know, or if they want you to, if they want people not to smoke as much, they recommend a high tax on cigarettes. So the left understands full well that taxes discourage activities in some contexts. It's only when it comes to generating economic activity that they all of a sudden think that taxes don't affect behavior. Absolutely. And, you know, Ireland is a, is a case in point. You know, Ireland is a, you know, economically, I've spoken about this a long time, a lot, is that, you know, Ireland economically is a really bad country. It's really socialist with go huge government programs. You know, the COVID has proved this beyond a shadow of a doubt. But the one policy it gets right is a 12.5% corporation tax. And, um, you know, why? Why is that important? Because, you know, it brings company in that goes, hey, I want to do business in your country. You know, because, you know, you're not Europe, you're Europe, but you're not Europe. You're on the, the, the outskirts and different things. And like, that's what that's why incentivizes it. But now what's happening is we've gone from the opposite. So what's frustrating for me, you know, a lot, I've been saying that a lot today and recently as well, is America's kind of gone from this arc where, I don't know if you remember, if you, if you follow your politics a lot, but you remember Herman Cain went the 999 plan. I remember being in libertarian circles around the Tea Party. It was great. We had many debates about flat and fair tax. And mm -hmm. what I always found funny about those debates is I'm a, I'm a fair tax guy. But like, you know, if I had a flat tax guy and I was debating him or girl, I'd be the enemy, you know, and, and I was treated as such because, and I'm like, you know, there's very little difference, you know, where, you know, I, I'll accept the flat tax to get to the fair tax, but, you know, I don't see you as an enemy. Whereas mm -hmm. now we go forward to 2021 and your president right now is is pushing and reports are he's pushing Joe Biden or Boris Johnson when he meets him next week to have a globalization, harmonization, global tax rates. This is a horrifically bad idea, even for America. Um, this is going to punish innovation. What would your argument be to someone real quickly to say, this is a really bad idea? Or do you think it's a bad idea? Well, yes, I, I do, like I say. Like, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to put words in your mouth. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. But yeah, no, I said a minute ago, I wish we'd get rid of income taxes altogether. So yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, in, in just standard economic theory, there, there's different, there's ways of raising revenue that are less and more harmful to the economy in taxing income is, is a lot worse than taxing consumption, for example. And, uh, and then taxing corporate income is even worse than taxing personal and, you know, wage income, for example, because it, it, it penalizes saving and investment. And so, you know, the, because, and again, you know, why is it, it's not because, oh, we want to favor millionaires instead of wage earners or something like that. It's just, you know, someone who's earning a paycheck, if, they're they're not going to just quit their job and not and not work for wages anymore if the tax rate is twenty percent instead of seventeen percent. But when it comes to making investments and things, little changes in tax rates can drastically alter behavior. And like you say, 
especially for international investors. And then that's why, you know, Ireland is a tax haven, you know, depending on certain characteristics and things that it was for a while. A lot of companies have their headquarters officially in Ireland just because of the tax code. And so, yes, that's, that's one reason why these particular countries, you know, if you lower your rate, you get a lot more investment in there and you can earn more revenue that way. But again, it's, you don't want companies making investment decisions based on the tax code. And that's why it's good for you know, countries around the world to keep them low. And in recognition of that, you're right. Now they're, go- they're going the other way and saying, oh, it's not enough just for the US to raise its rate because they realize that will just make investors flee. And so that- that's why they have to coordinate with governments around the world. So there's nowhere you can run. And that is, that is a very ominous trend that they're getting into. And that's partly why so many of us were alarmed a few years ago when the Swiss you know, threw in the towel and, and started reporting ab- about their you know, much you know, their famous, you know, Swiss bank accounts that were supposed to be the pinnacle and epitome of secrecy. And that, you know, that's been broken down now because again, you know, that it was authorities recognized that we're going to have this high tax. And this is something too, that um, if you're familiar with Thomas Piketty, you know, in, in his, in his work that, you know, it's, it was tucked into the, you know, the ends of his book there, but he wasn't rec- recommending a wealth tax to raise revenue, it was just he wanted everyone to have to report their incomes to the government so that people, you know, couldn't get away with shielding it. You know, so it, it was more of a sort of big brother, just make sure governments around the world know what everyone's got. And you know, these these wealth tax requirements were just like a sort of formality in order to get force people to report their incomes to the government. So it is, uh, y- yes, they're definitely moving in that direction. And because they're going to ratchet up the rates. And because now it's a lot more easy for investors to move their capital around, that's why you're going to see this, quote, harmonization, which really is just a euphemism for governments coordinating so there's no escape. Absolutely. And I think the, the one thing that what we need right now, and we always need this every day of every year, but especially post-COVID, because there's so many people, you know, who are hurting, who've lost their businesses, you know, you need wealth creation. You know, I know a lot of people, and when I say this to, you know, to my friends on the left, they kind of go, oh, oh, I'm very uncomfortable. Yeah, no, that's what we need. We need people. I want everyone to get rich. You know, sadly, we so many people have become so brainwashed when they hear what you need is wealth creation, what they, like, I'm saying those words, but in their head, their internal dialogue is saying, rich, get richer. No, I want everyone to get rich. I want people, poor people to get more jobs, to start at an entry level, to work their way up, to become more and more successful, maybe get their own business if that's what they want or to progress in a company. We need more companies. We need more innovation. How do you do that? And I think, you know, what we've seen is and what we're seeing now with things like the Great Reset, with Agenda 2030 is a lot of people are looking to governments to reimagine how do we build an economy? And I think, you know, what we need to do is success, and we, we haven't done it very well over the last couple of years, especially, is we've kind of not given the argument that the, how you grow an economy is true individualism, true, you know, people having this great idea of, you know, what, I have this product or service, I think you'll want to buy it, I think you want to buy it, I think you want to buy it, and I'm going to go do it and create jobs. What, well, how can we change the narrative back and stop these, you know, horrifically bad plans? Yeah, so I agree with everything you it's said. A real there. simple question, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and it's maybe, so maybe one way of trying to motivate it or to to get people to see what's going on is you're right. It's it's not obvious ahead of time like what where the new products or new services are going to come from or what they should be. You know, you, in other words, innovation almost by definition means things we didn't know about ahead of time, right? If if we knew what the new products that were going to be introduced by 2030 were going to be, they already would exist. And so, you know, the question is what sort of social system is more conducive to unleashing 
productive, innovative people so they can go ahead and you know, bring these new products to market. And it's certainly not having everything get channeled through the political process. You know, anybody who's remotely aware of how government works, you know, should realize that that's, that's not where you're going to get genuine innovation from where accountability goes away. And, you know, there's everything has to get solved by committee or decided by committee. That's certainly not the way to do it. And, you know, government does not have resources of its own. If the government's going to invest in infrastructure, it's first taking those resources, either from, you know, taxpayers or private lenders or, you know, printing money, which is ultimately a tax on everybody in the form of inflation, and then go ahead and do it. And so the, the question is just always, where is the innovation going to come from? And yeah, you want to unleash people so that those who have a good idea can go ahead and, and implement it. But also there's accountability, right? Some people are going to have ideas that are going to not pan out. That's going to be, oh yeah, yeah, we started the company and it didn't work out. And that's why you have a profit and loss system. And, you know, some ideas succeed and some fail. And that's why you got to have a private sector and someone convinces, you know, venture capitalists to fund something. If it works, great. Let them keep their profits as a reward for successfully picking the winner. But if it blows up in their face, let them fail and don't bail them out. You know, that, that to me, that was one of the big problems of what happened in 2008 was that by bailing out all of these big banks and so forth, it just solidified the fact that the people that were responsible during the, you know, the, the height of the housing mania and, you know, there were a lot of investment firms that, that stayed away from mortgage-backed securities because they knew this stuff is crazy. It's going to blow up. And they, they should have taken over after. But mm -hmm. they didn't because the firms that did invest in that stuff got bailed out. And so that's just, you know, besides the unfairness of it, that just it's, it's bad for the system as a whole. And also, they never learned their lesson because I, I, we've got two last questions. But just if I read a recent report, I'm sure you read it. It was probably about two months ago, maybe, where um, the derivatives now at the banks, it's not a million. It's not a billion. It's not a trillion. It's a quadrillion, um, which they didn't learn their lesson yet. They got bailed out. So, you know, that's the idea. It's a moral principle. It's kind of a, it's a biblical principle as well, where, you know, if you make a mistake or you do something wrong, you should pay the price for it. Whereas when you bail people out, you don't pay the price, you don't learn your lesson and you just continue as business as normal. And that's what a lot of banks have done. I want to finish up with two questions with you, if that's all right. Um, one's yeah. a fun one and uh, you're going to be, uh, you're going to like the last one. But, this, but before we get to that, I don't think you can talk about reimagining the economy. We've talked about taxation. We've talked about uh, spending. We've talked about debt. Currency. Um, what they're doing. Federal Reserve, constant printing money, this just flushing the system with money, just to show you how much your, your spending has gone up. In 1980, you spent $550 billion in the federal government. By 1990, it was $1.17 trillion. By 2000, it was $1.75 trillion. By 2008, it was $2.97 trillion. By 2016, it was $3.87 trillion. And in 2021, it's $7 trillion dollars. What that is going to do is to fund that. You either have to borrow lots of money or you have to do print and presses or you have to do a combination. What does this do? Again, a frustration for me is all these policies hurt everyone, but the people they hurt the most is the poorest in society. Because at the end of the day, if you're a rich person, you know, like I always use my boss as an example. If Glenn Beck, if, you know, if you know, the price of gas goes up a book, Glenn Beck's going to go, oh, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, I'm annoyed. And geez, this is annoying. But guess what? He's a lot of money. He's just going to keep paying it. The person who, you know, was living off minimum wage or, you know, close to minimum wage, a bucket for every gallon of gas, that's a lot of money. They don't have that. They've got to, pay, if they've got to pay it because they've got to get to their jobs, they're not going to the movies. They might cutting back on food. They might be cutting back on, on, you know, electricity. This is not a good thing. And it hurts those in society. 
what would you say? How do we make this case of inflation is really bad? The current monetary policy is really bad, and it hurts the you know the hurts the poorest people in society. Well, one thing I would mention, this might be a bit esoteric, is um, for those of your listeners who are familiar with some of these data, that you, you can see there was something that fundamental that happened where, um, and, and this often comes from like left-leaning think tanks or you know, policy advocacy groups, and they'll show charts showing that, oh, for, you know, in the immediate post-war era in the United States, wages tracked productivity. You know, so as, as worker productivity went up, wage rates tended to go up. And then for some reason, they started diverging, and usually they'll they'll lead you to believe it had something to do with Ronald Reagan. But if you look at their own diagrams, the divergence starts in the early seventies where for some reason it like worker productivity keeps going up, but real wages are stagnant. And what happened in the early 1970s, that's when Richard Nixon formally ended, you know, the gold closed the gold window and the dollar became a truly fiat currency at that point. And so, you know, just thinking it through when the government, you know, when the federal reserve can just print money, who, who is likely to benefit from that? It's not going to be like you say, the average wage earner, you know, who has to wait for prices to rise. And then maybe by the next year can go to their boss and renegotiate their salary because, hey, everything's a lot more expensive than we were expecting. You know, it's the wheeler dealers that, you know, corporate investors, things like that. Those are the spe you know, speculators. Those are the people that do well in an inflationary, volatile, inflationary environment. So it's, it's no, no surprise to me that since the early 70s, you see this divergence in the data between, you know, fundamentals and what, you know, the average worker is getting in terms of take home pay. Um, and yeah, this time around, you're right. It's if you look at charts and I know Glenn Beck, you know, shows this on his show all the time, charts of what the Federal Reserve has been doing after 2008, it was bad. They had the three rounds of so-called quantitative easing. But since March 2020, when the you know COVID hysteria hit, it's been incredible. It's something like I think it was in the in the I 12 agree. months. Yeah, from March 2020 to, to March 2021, I think the Fed's balance sheet went up by something like close to 80%. It was over 70% just in one year in yeah. terms of how many assets they went and bought. And just in, in, in terms of the, the type of asset too, like the, the Federal Reserve is now into everything from corporate bonds down to credit card debt, you know, yeah. working through um, asset-backed securities that were issued on those things. So it, it's sort of like, what FDR did in the 1930s, like to expand the role of the federal government in the U.S. economy, that's what Ben Bernanke and Jay Powell have done, you know, in terms of their tenure running the Federal Reserve, is now we just take it for granted that the Fed can intervene in anything. And like you said, th that's not creating wealth. Just creating dollars doesn't actually make us richer. It doesn't create more farmland or, or you know, minerals or give more people who are software programmers. It's, it just, it's extra dollars chasing the same amount of stuff. That's going to cause prices to go up. So, just quick question: this, this is not this is not the second one, but to get it back to where it was in the seventies, prior to, to Nixon doing that horrifically stupid thing, do you see a way doing that? Do you see a cryptocurrency solving that? You know, whether it's Bitcoin or anything else, or are we just going to continue this path towards where we just accept, you know, inflation is just a part of life because the, you know they're just going to constantly print money? Um. So I. I think you'll see more and more people switching, you know, to to holding physical gold and silver just as hedges, and then yes, getting into cryptocurrency. Um, unfortunately, I think in, before everybody switched over enough so that like the dollar falling wouldn't be a big deal. In other words, I think a, a crisis would have to occur first. Like the Americans okay. are gonna are gonna use the U.S. dollar until it crashes and then they might use something. So the, the, those of us who see it coming are going to be hedged 
and hold a bunch of other assets that respond well and to inflation. So we're not going to get crushed. But I think the average American is still going to be thinking in terms of dollars until the dollar itself crashes, which, you know, if they keep doing these policies, that's that's going to happen. Absolutely. Last question, just to end on a bit of fun and games. So one of the things Calvin Coolidge did was when he reduced the size of government was roughly, you know, depending on what figures you use, he cut about 6,000 federal workers from the payroll. What I'm going to do is because your government and your cabinet is so small, I'm going to name each department in your cabinet under Joe Biden and under Donald Trump and under pretty much every president in the last 20, 30 years. And you're going to say keep or destroy and see how many jobs we can save. You ready? Okay, but it's I'm I'm pretty I'm, I'm a pretty I, small I, government guy. <laughs> I think the easier I think the easier answer for people like you and me might be who will we keep. Um, right. But I'm just curious to see agriculture. Clearly, get rid of commerce. Clearly, get rid of defense. Okay, so this one it it's more arguable. You know that that is a you know a constitutionally specified function. Um, I like how originally it was the you know Secretary of War, War. that was a more honest name. Whereas then they you know and that was back when they really were defensive, and then they, they changed it. Yeah. So, um, so I, 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 I'm not a fan of most of what the U.S. government does in terms of its military, but on that one, you know, I, I could see someone making an argument that 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 was in the Constitution. But certainly, a lot of the overseas adventurism, you know, I would I would want to see all that stuff cut and bring a lot of those troops home. Awesome education. I get rid of energy. Get rid of HHS. Again, get rid of homeland security. I, again, clear, clearly get, get rid of there too, because all, yeah, all those functions, you know, in terms of police and government and things like you know that that should be lower levels if you were going to have the government do that. Having it go through the federal government, I think, is a big mistake. Hood was it housing and urban development. Yes. Yeah, get rid of interior. Again, get rid of it. And on that one, too, again, there's all sorts of scandals about, like, even for people who want to protect, you know, natural resources and whatever, like, there's all sorts of scandals about, like, I'm not making this stuff up. I don't know if it was on your radar where, like, the people having parties with cocaine and prostitutes and stuff. I mean, it's really... Was that the interior? I, I remember hearing something about that. I don't pay much attention. I mean, it, I think I, I'm pretty sure, well, like, it was some lower level, you know, yeah. section of it, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, it's... My point is just being, it's not just, oh, because I'm a right winger and I want, you know, oil companies to drill or something. I'm saying even for people who care about conservation and whatnot, these government agencies do not do what you think they're doing. Yeah. Labor. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I would get rid of, there's, there's you know, roles for unions and things like that in a, in a free market, but that's, you're not getting. Why do you hate workers? Yeah. <laughs> States. Um. So again, that's kind of my answer with the fact that there, you know, you, at least you could say there's certain yeah. procedures that if you if you were a constitutionalist, that should be there. But certainly, you could get rid of a lot of what they do and cut their budget tremendously. Transport. Again, I would get rid of that. Just privatize all that stuff. Treasury. Again, I'll give the same answer that you know that that's one of the few things that is laid out in the Constitution, and again, a lot of what they do, I wouldn't have them doing, but. You could make an argument that it should exist. Veteran affairs. Um, I don't know enough about that. I mean, so certainly, given that there's a bunch of veterans who are employed by the federal armed forces, you know, you, you need to deal with the fact that they're still out there and if they're owed pensions and health care and whatnot. Yeah. Um, 
I, I don't think there should just be separate hospitals, but I think, you know, there are lots of, I don't know if this was on your radar, but there's huge scandals with the veterans oh, you know, hospitals and what happened. So, so I, you know, I think in practice you would be helping them by not micromanaging their lives and so forth. But, but, but yes, I, I would be concerned about, you know, making sure given those people exist that they're not just completely forgotten, but whether there should be a whole uh, position for that, I don't know. Yeah, I have a, a good few military friends and the amount of stories I would say, and I'm not joking, I'm just going to give a number, but it, it won't be far off. It would be at least probably 50 to one for every for every one good story I hear or okay story, 50 bad stories and some horrifically bad stories, you know, for you know a nation that says they love their troops and stuff. And if you heard some of those stories and yet no matter whether it's, it was a scandal under Trump at the start and he was going to reform it and different things, but you know, that's a whole, that's a whole different show. And um, justice. Um, yeah, so yeah, again, there I'm being an economist, I'm yeah. not exactly familiar. So yeah, there are certain things like in terms of federal district courts and stuff like that, that I'm, I imagine, you know, yeah. if given that you're going to have a federal government, you would need that there, but I don't know whether it needs to be a cabinet position. And I'm going to take a guess. The next one's your favorite government body, the EPA. <laughs> oh, clearly get rid of that. Um, well, actually, and, and, and again, and I, and I should and I should say too, like just again for listeners who want to be fair-minded, or it's not because oh I care about GDP and I don't care about the environment. I mean, like for example, you can look at various indicators of environmental quality, and they were improving even before the Clean Air Act, for example. So yeah. it's there's a lot of this stuff where things on their own, or because of state and local regulation, and you know we're we're doing very well. And then the federal government just comes in and, you know, has some nice sounding bill that gets passed and people think that's the cause of it. Yeah. And that's the frustrating thing for me is one of the things I love about your system is the idea of federalism. So I always say this to my friends and life, like if you like all these like crazy, what I would call crazy policies where you're like, I want every one of these agencies, then go pick a state, California, New York, Rhode Island, you know, um, Boston, or not Boston, Boston, let's say Massachusetts, pick all these states, Vermont, you're not short of these states and make it a haven for all your policies. And guess what? Mm -hmm. We'll take our states and do whatever. And here's the thing about Americans, they're open-minded. If you go and make New York the best state in the union and everyone's going there, Guess what? Texas and other places are going to go, hey, what's New York doing? What can we do? If you want to have the best roads and bridges, you want to have all the government. And if you have a state which has no government or, you know, very little government, then let them decide. But this idea of, you know, you're against the EPA, so you want dirty air and dirty water. It's like, no, I actually follow the Constitution. They shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. um, next one. This is just to show you, like, for people who want to believe in limited governments. You know, if you want to start reforming America and reimagining America, get rid of some of these bodies. We're nearly there. The OMB. Uh, right. I mean, I, again, I would have to look. I'm sure some of what they do needs to be maintained if the federal government exists. But yeah, I don't. I doubt they would need a whole position yeah. for that. And then uh, there's people like a trade rep, uh, missions to UN, Council of Economic Advisors. The last one is the SBA, Small Business Association. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I would get rid of again. The, the federal government has no business funding small business. No pun intended. Small yeah. small businesses anyway. And again, it's they're. It's not that the, the federal government only has resources that it first takes from elsewhere. So like you say, if you want the government to do that, you could do it at the state level or a local level. You know, it, it, there's no reason that it needs to all go through Washington, D.C. Yeah. And it's, this is just to prove a point. You know, if you might agree with, you know, some of these things. You might disagree as you're listening. But the idea that Nancy Pelosi would say, you know, the cupboard is bare. You know, this is your federal. This is only the cabinet. This is only the president. And if you read Article 2, there is no power. And this is the thing. We need to start having this discussion where there's 
is this a likely to give you innovation or is it not likely to give you an innovation? So I think this is for everyone to decide at home listening, kind of go, look at your government, look at your bodies and kind of go, how do you solve and reimagine America? And I would encourage everyone this weekend when they're listening to this show, sort of maybe agree with some of us, disagree with some points, but try and imagine it and try and make your world a better place. How, how can people find you? I know you're on Twitter a lot and you, you write a lot for Mises um, and you've also got a book coming out on, or is, is it out already on, uh, I can't believe this is a big book, but you know, when Paul Kugman is wrong, like oh. that has to be the shortest book ever. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that, yeah, that, the name of that book is Contra Krugman. Um, yeah. So if you go to ContraKrugmanBook.com, you can find that. Um, I would just point people. Is it out or is it coming out? Yeah, it's, it's, it's out. Yeah. It's, oh, okay. a collection, yeah, it's a collection of essays I wrote over the years uh, criticizing his New York Times pieces. So, yeah, I would point people to BobMurphyShow.com. That's where my web, uh, my podcast is located. And it's got links to everything else I do. Awesome. And you're on Twitter as well? Yep. Uh, Bob Murphy Econ. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, America. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. As always, we finish the way we do each and every week by saluting you, the American people. Never forget the sentiments at Stokeville. America is great because Americans are good. You're not be good because of any of these bodies or because of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. You're great because of every one of you, and you are going to solve America's problems, not the federal government. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.